Welcome to the special session of the Women in Technology Spotlight, which was recorded as part of the VCM Tech Talk series at VMware. In this session, I will be talking to Amanda Blevins. She's the Senior Director and Chief Technologist in the Office of the CTO at VMware. Please like and subscribe so you won't miss any of our future episodes. I just briefly introduced myself for those who haven't um, had the pleasure of meeting me. My name is Ranke. I'm based out of Vienna in Austria. I'm a lead solution engineer for security now. I've been with VMware for five years, started as an NSX engineer for Austria, covering all the products. I'm now in the COE for security. And so enough of me. I have the pleasure to interview Amanda today. Hi, Amanda. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about who you are? Let's start it off like that, maybe. All right, that sounds good. Thank you, everyone, for having me. I'm Amanda Blevins. I live in the U.S. in Colorado. Um, so I've been at VMware almost 12 years. It'll be 12 years in April. I started as a core SE in the field when we had about 4,000 employees and four or five products. So clearly much different company than it is today. Um, I became the first woman uh, principal systems engineer, uh, field, field principal at the company, um, about five years into my employment here. And then shortly after that, I moved to the office of the CTO and became a chief technologist. So my day-to-day -day job encompasses a few things. I talk with our customers about our vision and strategy and how we can solve their business problems with our solutions. I work with the various teams in R&D to influence product roadmap and innovation, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, I lead the Global Field Program. So our CTO ambassadors and Global Field principals uh, get to be a part of that awesome community and give back as I was one of the first CTO ambassadors about, I think it was in 2013 is when the program started, which is much different than it is today. So um, yeah, your career has been really impressive. As you mentioned, you've been the first, I think you're the first female um, CTO actually, and uh, you've been around a long time at VMware. But stepping back from that a little bit, so were you always interested in tech? Was that something that was always a hobby? How did, how did you grow up? Was it something you always did? Yeah, it actually was. So my dad has a PhD in electrical engineering. And so he holds patents around creation of microcomputers, you know, way before like 8086 processor existed. So when I was born, we had a bunch of tech in the house and my first computer was an 8086 and I really like video games. So clearly I could play video games on these devices. Um, but also the rule was I couldn't play video games unless I learned to program. So basic, I mean, I cheated cause I'm not a good programmer and just go to line you know, 50 or something like that. Um, but what that really did is when I entered high school I played a bunch of sports as a kid and I had an injury where I tore my ACL in my right knee. And so I couldn't play any sports for like months. And after playing soccer at a very high level and basketball and volleyball and softball and basically never being home and you know being out, now I was stuck at home and I couldn't do anything. So that was about the time like AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy were out. These were dial-up services if you're much younger than me. And so um, I was using my dad's computer and the phone line so much in the house because I just found the internet fascinating that um, I got my first computer, my own, and my own phone line that year for Christmas. So um, I really used the internet to, to connect with people and to learn as much as I possibly could. And I learned that I really enjoy the aspect of using like somebody else's design, you know, how to overclock the system, how applications and games work, you know, how the operating system work. 
And so when I went to college, I had a soccer scholarship, a goalkeeper, or football, as you all say, and, um, and I needed extra spending money. So I started working the help desk. So in high school, I did like PC repair for money and, and um, helped out around my dad's office and you know, keeping those help desk kind of stuff going on. And so when I went to the university, I did help desk there. And then um, I got tired of people complaining, <laughs> as you all know how help desk goes. <laughs> And uh, I started um, working for the School of Engineering and managing the School of Engineering uh, computers. And so that was just like learning Ghost and installing Windows NT, you know, six copies at a time down a row of, of machines. But I also um, really used that opportunity to explore other technologies, you know, like connecting to the Unix systems and maybe going into places I shouldn't have or, you know, downloading password files or running Jack the Cracker or something like that. And so I joined um, a Linux user group because I knew nothing about Linux. And that was actually the first time I saw virtualization was at a Linux user group meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it was uh, wine. So how to emulate, you know, machine on Linux. So that was the very beginning before I entered my professional career, uh, just as spending money. But yes, always a techie, always into it, always loving how to improve things and solve the problems that I wanted to solve. Yeah. So this is a, such an interesting story because I've talked to a lot of women in tech, obviously, and, and their journeys are usually very different. But one thing that sticks out is that you obviously had a role model in your father, right? Who inspired you and, and um, kind of showed you the ropes as well. Do you, do you feel that made a big difference in, in your perception of, of tech? Because can you imagine how it would have been growing up in a household that did not have that because you talked about being very sporty and, and doing sports maybe you would be a professional football player now or something <laughs> you know i could have been if i didn't have an injury i did um play for the olympic development program uh, in the u.s so my life could have been completely different if i didn't have an injury but you know that's a good question i think because tech was so embedded in our everyday lives that I can't even imagine growing up without tech. So my dad has a twin brother who's also a software developer um, and a little bit of hardware, but mostly software. So it was just common. And I really loved like the bring your kid to work day because then I got to go sit in his office. I got a whiteboard that I could draw on. You know, he'd write out like math problems or something and keep me busy. And then I really love like going to the cafeteria and getting a donut and chocolate milk. I'm like, this is what being an adult is like. This is what working, like it was so much better than school. Um, so yeah, I just, I wouldn't even know what life would be like without tech. It was just, it was just part of life. Yeah. Uh, what you just said was basically that uh, your role models were male. So um, I was wondering, since um, we all know that tech is a very male space and then your father and his twin world that they were both in tech. Um, and then there was you, what was it like? I mean, in terms of, did you even notice that you were the only woman um, in this mix or was it just it's you and you're interested in tech? Yeah, yeah. So like I mentioned, playing a lot of sports and of course being a kid. So I grew up in South Florida. So you just be outside year round because it's warm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I would play, you know, like my parents would be like, get out of the house, like <laughs> stop sitting in front of screens or play video games or get off computers, right? Like get out of the house, stop annoying us. So basically I had to be out of the house, like not in front of a screen at my friend's house and out playing like with kids. Like, I don't know if kids still do that today. I don't really see it, but you know, like dodgeball or, you know, pickle or baseball or something like on the street or in somebody's yard. 
And um, to do that, there was, I had a best friend who was a, a girl, but other than that, it was just us and all the neighborhood boys, right? And then at school, because I really loved kickball or whatever was happening, you know, as a kid in sports, all the good, most of the good players were boys. And so I was just always one of the boys, clearly a tomboy, um, clearly like that was what I grew up in. And so, you know, it was obvious that I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't a boy, I was a girl, I was different but it didn't necessarily bother me because I'm so competitive and I always want to win and I always want to be the best that I almost, I think maybe, I think I did like wear it as a badge of honor, right? Because back then it was always like, oh, you throw like a girl, oh, boys are better, whatever. And so that competition just raised my level of, of ability to show them, hey, you know, you're not better than me and I can win. So yes, it was obvious, but it, it didn't, didn't really bother me. Yeah. So what I heard uh, from what you told me about your life is that both uh, you're both competitive and also curious. So you talked about, you know, learning about Linux and doing things that you're not supposed to do. So um, that obviously puts you at an, um, at an advantage when you go into tech. Um, so when, then when you came to university, apart from working at the help desk to make some money and, and then working for the, the college, uh, what was your studies like? Tell us a little yeah. bit about how you experienced that. Yeah, so um, even though, like I mentioned, I thought like my dad's job was super cool. He got an office, a whiteboard, you know, chocolate donut and chocolate milk and, you know, seemed to work on interest, really interesting things. Um, I didn't know, I knew that I did not want to program. I knew that I was not a developer. I knew I did not like that. And so the only option for a tech degree at the time was in computer science. And so I was, and, but also my passion was around um, biology and, and genetics and being a geneticist. So um, I had like a bunch of credits from high school that transferred it to university, but I started taking biology classes with the intention of becoming a geneticist. And I remember my first like biology lab and they, you know, brought us into a room with microscopes and they're like, um, you know, your first lab is to count the red blood cells under the microscope. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> why? Like, can't somebody else count these? Like, why do I need to count them? Like, that's silly. I'm like, is this, is this what the job is like? I don't want to do this at all. So um, I did transfer my major to the School of Engineering and started computer science. Like I mentioned when we were chatting, I had um, an injury, so I couldn't play soccer anymore. So my scholarship ran out and it was pretty expensive. And so that happened right around the time I transferred to computer science my second year in university. And that's when I started getting into Linux and building my systems at home and accessing other systems to learn from. And um, I had an internship over the summer at an ISP, which is like those dial-up companies, but just not as big and local. And um, I really enjoyed it. So after my second year where I couldn't play sports anymore, I kind of like lost my identity a little bit. And I didn't really enjoy the computer science uh, classes because it was programming. Um, I asked that employer if, you know, they give me my full-time job, which they did. So then I started my life of system administration. So managing, you know, banks of dial-up modems, installing T1, CSU, DSUs, managing web servers, email servers, and a bunch of stuff. And so that was really my transition into the actual professional world without, you know, the sports and, and, um, and other things. Yeah. So when you tell it, it sounds like it uh, it was just like the smooth progression from one step to the other and everything just kind of fell into place and you were uh, in the right place at the right time, you know. So did you experience any obstacles at all doing this? Because um, it just feels so 
as if it was meant to be. Yeah, well, um, there's this quote, it's attributed uh, to, um, I think Andrew Jackson, no, that's not right, Tom, mm, maybe Thomas Jefferson, but I don't think that that's true either. The, um, the saying goes, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm -hmm. So when you say, yeah, it seems to all fall into place, like the fact that I had an injury and I couldn't play soccer anymore. And that's what I did for my life. Like it was devastating. Like I mentioned, like flippantly that it was a, a crisis of identity, but it truly was. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I always knew like I was this, you know, high level athlete and I was going to play for the national team and that's what was going to happen. And then that wasn't a choice anymore. But luckily, um, I did, you know, work really hard, you know, maybe messing around and systems at home and, and, you know, systems at the school just seems like playing, but I was learning every day. My, my personality is about, you know, hunger for information. Like even today, like if I'm not learning, I don't consider it like a, a useful, productive day. It doesn't mean all my days have to be productive or useful, but, you know, at my job or outside of my job responsibilities, I'm just constantly learning. So that means I worked really hard when I had that internship with that company, like, it was a lot of work to cold call around and find somebody that would take me. Luckily, it was like a startup and they thought, oh, free labor, awesome, like, let's do that. But I had to prove myself every single day and bring new ideas to that company and improve how they did things. So when I asked for that full-time job, he knew exactly what he was getting, you know, as an employee for me, somebody that worked really hard, you know, long hours if necessary, but just also really enjoyed the work and saw that I was constantly learning and wanting to improve things. It's so interesting that when you enjoy doing something, hard work doesn't seem that painful, right? <laughs> so you will then, because you said that uh, every day you don't learn something new, you it kind of don't consider it a productive day. And I think that's just something that happens when you are interested in something that you just remain productive. Um, there was one thing I was wondering, so being a professional professional, uh, sports person takes a lot of grit and, and, and hard work. Does any of that translate into what you do now, you know, in, in tech? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, your mention about hard work doesn't seem, you know, like, uh, like you're working if you really enjoy it. And so if I think back to the training I had to do just as a goalkeeper, just in one sport, right? Like I had two hours of practice a day with my team and the field players and playing goal there. I'd have two hours a day of practice with my goalkeeper coach. Um, in college and university, then we have to wake up early and lift and have practice in the morning and then sometimes in the evening too, depending on, you know, when the games were. And so that was physically hard. And so I always saw things like video games and the computer as a break because I wasn't physically like doing things, right? Like clearly it's mentally difficult and can be exhausting for using my brain, but compared to what I was used to at the level that I played sports at and, and the, the demanding coaches that I had, like, it was just ingrained in me, like might not be the healthiest thing looking back at it, but it certainly built that grit in because there wasn't, I couldn't stop, you know, that it just was not allowed. If I was lying on the ground after I made a save and it got the wind knocked out of me, nobody was like, oh, let's pause the game, time out. Oh, let's stop. No, it wasn't like that. It was like, get up and get the next save, right? So just this grit was ingrained in me. And I have a good friend that I keep in touch with, and she played soccer at that level and went to Harvard and very intelligent person and doctor today. And we talk about how we find that people that played some sort of sport at a high level seem to do well in their professional career because we just don't give up. There's that, that's just not an option. Like we were just trained and, and ingrained in that way. 
And so that grit has certainly transferred over to my professional career where, you know, somebody says, no, Amanda, you can't do this thing. If that's like a project or somewhere I want to go in my career or something, well, okay, no, you can't do it. There has to be a reason. Maybe they don't think that I, I'm good enough or I don't know enough things or I need more experience or whatever. So I ask, I keep asking, why can't I do this? Why am I not ready? Not like to bug them or annoy them, but so I get the actual information of what I need to do so I can be seen in their eyes as that person that can do that job. And so I think grit is like super important. I mean, there definitely has to be this balance of, you know, I can't be killing myself doing this thing um, because I need to take care of myself, of course, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So clearly I can't be banging my head against the wall trying to get somewhere if I, if it's, you know, a brick wall and I'm just not going to get through it, but I can be intelligent and see if there's another path around that wall. If there's other people that can help me or mentor me and get me to a point where I am ready to do that thing. Or in the process, I learned that I don't want to do that thing. And I learned about something else that's interesting to me. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, um, you know, understanding what you actually want to do uh, means that you have to understand what it is you're doing, you know, and um, it also brings me to this question of resiliency, because that was one thing I thought about when you said that this injury crushed your career dream, basically, but then you got up and then you became really good in something else. And I think uh, resiliency is also a big topic if you want to make a career like like yours, you know, because there obviously will always be obstacles and it's not, I mean, getting to that level you are at now, it's not easy. So I think that's something you learned through sports. And um, coming to career, actually, so you're now uh, a CTO, which is amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that came to be, because obviously part of it is your curiosity, your um, grit and all that. But, but tell me us a little bit about how you experienced that. Yeah, yeah. So a chief technologist at VMware um, basically is aligned to like a geolocation and um, a technology area. So like, for example, you know, this person is chief technologist of EUC in the UK, or, or this person is chief technologist networking security in the Americas or, or something like that. And um, when I went through the process to become a chief technologist, um, uh, in fact, it was Joe Bagley who I was having this conversation with, and he's been a great mentor and, and now friend. And he's like, well, you know, you're not a chief technologist of anything, right? That doesn't show up in my title. And it's because I'm a generalist, right? You know, they say generalists or jack of all trades or whatever the saying is, like, you know, master of none, good at everything, but master of none. And that's not quite how I approach it. Like, there are certain technologies or certain areas of knowledge where I'm most certainly, um, you know, quite knowledgeable and, and certainly able to hold my own and, and teach others about things. And then there's other stuff that I just have a cursory knowledge of, and I rely on others, you know, to, to share that information. Mm -hmm. But becoming, um, you know, a chief technologist at, at VMware, there's only, I don't know, maybe eight of us or something like that. There's not very many. And so it was a very rigorous process, just like becoming a field principal. You have to put together a body of work. You have to get letters of recommendations from principal engineers in R&D, from other CTOs of the company. Um, you have to show that you've made a major impact. And so the resilience part and the grit part means that um, to be able to make that impact, I had to have my voice heard. And there's this, um, 
and and I'm not saying this is only for women, and you know certainly it probably uh, probably affects you know people of color or people um, um, that are differently abled or or somebody that looks different. Um, but there's this constant need for some reason for for this group of people, the underrepresented folks, um, to have to constantly prove themselves. And it could be deemed as exhausting, and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen you know, with other uh, groups of people, but it is this required thing, like every single day that we have to prove ourselves. And again, back to those sports, every single day I had to prove myself or I was on the bench. So it was, so it wasn't something that I, that was new to me. I was just constantly, you know, having to prove myself and it doesn't feel great every time. I'm like, look, I proved myself for the last 11 years Why I have to prove myself tomorrow. Well, that's just how it is sometimes. And that's what we have to accept. And in the background or in the foreground or in other situations, we can band together and show that that's not right and show that that, that, that isn't equitable. But in the situation where it's happening, I can't be like time out, you know, this isn't equitable or, or fair or whatever. We need to change it. No, if I want to move forward in business and my career, I have to play by those rules at that time. And I can use a different time to be able to change those rules and to be able to educate folks and, and have them think in a different way. So when I, before I got to the office of the CTO, I had worked with my uh, senior director of SEs and came up with a new position because I was getting kind of bored uh, being a core SE. Like, you know, we went to club the first three years together. We were doing quite well, but my number of customers I was supporting completely um, decreased every year. So I had like the same 10 accounts. And I'm like, I can do more. I can have more impact. I can help more people just give me a larger breadth of, of companies and customers and partners to work with. So the senior director of SEs for the West and, and the United States put together this role for me where I reported directly to him and I was responsible for creating these long-term plans for technology, people and process for these companies to achieve their business goals. And I would do that with folks that were solution architects as part of my team. And I do that with folks that um, I forget what we'd call them back then, um, but basically they're the folks that do more of the financial modeling and, and people and process side of things. And we put together these long plans, very detailed, and the sales teams could take that and um, no longer have to be like, hey, you should buy NSX because this, you know, shiny new widget or feature. It's more like, hey, we all agreed six months ago, you need NSX at this time because of this project. And then the sale happened and the, you know, the PSO happened, the enablement happened. And um, I thought I was doing great. And then out of the blue, it was like a few days after the new year, sometime early January, I get an email, not from my boss, but from somebody else saying, hey, Amanda, you're now a solution architect on this team. Nobody had a conversation with me. Nobody gave me a heads up. Nobody asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, well, what? Like, you know, I was not thinking very kind things in my head at the time. And as I learned more about the team and the manager, I realized I wasn't a good fit. There was going to be a pay cut. And I'm like, that's not acceptable. You know, the, the way that comp structure worked between solution architects and SEs meant that even if I overachieved, I couldn't make what I'd overachieve as an SE. I was like, that's not fair. And the, the leader of the group said, well, we don't make exceptions for people. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I started looking for another job. I looked externally, I looked internally. And the way I got into Octo was that the program manager of the CTO ambassadors at the time had a meeting with Ray O'Farrell, who was our CTO at the time, to go over the program and stuff that was happening. And somehow my name came up and she knew that I was looking and Ray said something like, oh, we'll be great that Amanda can do this thing or something like that. I wasn't there. 
And she said, well, maybe, you know, Amanda's looking for another job because this is what happened. And Ray's like, oh, she is. Well, I thought she was happy where she was, but I have these opportunities. I need to talk to her. And that's how I joined the office of the CTO because of the work I did in the ambassador program, because of the change that I made, because of the, the brand that I had around me about who I was and what I could get done. I was asked by our CTO. So after I picked my job off the floor, like, oh my gosh, he knows who I am and he's offering me a job. Um, you know, I said, you know, I got right to it and I'm like, okay, you know, what do you need done? And so he's like, well, I need this type of job or this type of job or something else you think we might need to do. So I was able to write my own job description again and join the office of the CTO that way. But if I just sat back and said, okay, I got reorged to this team. I don't like it. I'm just going to sit here. You know, I, maybe I would still be a solution architect, which isn't bad, but wasn't what excited me and wasn't the team that I wanted to be on. Yeah, those are two really good points that you made in that story of yours. And one was that you had to make your voice heard. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I think since VMware has become very big, this is something that a lot of us struggle with, you know, to be heard with, over that noise, you know, that's, that's happening daily. So, uh, I, but I think it's a very important point. And the other thing is, you said, and you did this twice, you created your own job description, basically, you know, because that job that happened after you were a core solution engineer was of your own making. And then again, you did this. So can you talk a little bit about how you um, did that? Yeah, yeah. So um, everyone here on this call, you know, whether you're watching live or you're watching the recording, everybody has something you're really passionate about. And it could be very specific technology. It could be um, you know, a general technology like me, where I like to, you know, put everything together. Um, it might be a passion around helping others in some way. It might be a passion about leading teams and being a manager, whatever your passion is, mm -hmm. that's, that's where you're going to succeed. That's where you're going to have fun. You know, we all work a lot. Um, it's a major part of our lives, even if you only work, not, and I say only, but even if you work 35, 40 hours a week, that is the majority of your time being awake. So if you're not enjoying it and you're not passionate about it, I highly suggest to be like, figure out why, like, okay, what am I really passionate about? So if you find this thing that you're passionate about, and it can be more than one, that's fine. Then you compare it to the place that you work, the team that you're on, and you say, wow, I have these skills and I'm passionate about this thing. And there is a gap at VMware. There is a gap on my team. There's a gap in the field. There's a gap in RD, wherever the gap is, and it aligns to your passion. That is where you can make the most impact. And that's where you're going to have the most fun doing it. Um, so that is what I did. So my first job description that, that I created with, uh, with the senior director for SEs was around influencing executives and creating this long-term plan to either get rid of shelfware or to change the hearts and minds of how they viewed VMware and how we could solve their problems. Nobody else was doing that at that level across strategic customers. And that was something I could do because before I joined VMware, I was always a customer. Um, I did a little bit of consulting too, but I was always on the customer side, sysadmin, storage admin, server architect, you know, technical architect, um, enterprise architect. And so I knew exactly what it was like. I knew the problems and the things that they experienced. And so I could really connect to them on that that emotional human level of that's hard, that's terrible. You don't want to spend your time doing that. This is how we help. So I was able to uplevel myself, learn to speak to executives in that way and provide this value where it wasn't just Amanda selling to Dish Networks and get a big deal. It was Amanda helping all these other teams 
do that at that level. So I had exponential value to the company and I got to do something I was passionate about and not a skill that I had to start, like, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. I didn't have a bunch of executive conversation experience. I just made it up as I went. And every time I did it, I learned something and I improved and I did better. And that's still true today. I have tons of executive conversations every week, but that doesn't mean that all of them are perfect and everybody is different. So I need to modulate and change how I interact with someone based on who they are. Yeah. So um, what that also did was it built some kind of personal brand around you because obviously the the CT the CTO knew you, which is uh, something that's not easy to achieve, but he knew something about you and he had an idea of who you were. So obviously you have a brand that is known, that is known at the Ember. Do you have any tips around doing that? Yes, I have so many tips. So I do this talk, um, Achieving Happiness, um, Building Your Brand and Your Career. And so the first thing I want to say about brand is everybody has one. Whether you actively and intentionally tried to create it or not, you absolutely have one. So when I joined VMware, I was on a team of core SEs, I don't know, maybe 12 of us, and it was called the South Central Region. Clearly, nobody looked at a map of the U.S. and saw, you know, where the Rocky Mountains were, but that's where we were. And um, I quickly had this um, brand, so to speak, of that I was scary and intimidating across the team. And so like my boss pointed out how that wasn't helpful. Like, you know, in my everyday activities, you know, not a big deal. I was still, you know, killing it as an SE, doing a great job, helping others, working with BUs, improving products and services. But especially as a woman, sometimes people do not like that type of um, attitude or, or they get very uncomfortable, even if that's not true with that perception. <clears throat> so one of the first things I had to do in my career at VMware to help me um, be able to attain the next step is to not have people be scared of me. And so hopefully I'm doing better at that. If you're scared of me, I apologize. It's not my intention. Um, but my boss at the time said that, you know, spend some time with your teammates. So literally it was like my job <clears throat> to go buy them a beer or, you know, whatever was appropriate, however, to just get together and chat and just let them know who I am as a human and that I'm not this like scary, intimidating person most of the time. And I was like, whatever. I'm like, but fine, I'll do it, right? I'm used to somebody saying, this is what you need to improve. Go do it this way. Okay, I'm going to go do it. And I clearly remember sitting in that Hilton, um, Hilton Union Square in San Francisco. And I don't know why we were there. Maybe it was a tech summit or something. And one of the guys on my team, he just came down, sat next to me in an empty room after a session. And we were chatting. And he literally said, like 10, 15 minutes in the conversation, unprompted, oh, you're not so scary. And I was like, Are you? so this is real, right? So my brand was created without me knowing because I wasn't paying attention. And it was very clear what the issue was. People were not comfortable interacting with me because they found me too intimidating. Um, and so that was something I had to work on. And it wasn't necessarily my fault. I wasn't being mean. I wasn't being rude. I was just being me, like get in there. Let's get it done. Let's do it to the best of our abilities. And not everybody has that approach. So I had to change how I interacted with folks to let them know that, hey, you're welcome part of the team. I never meant for you to be excluded or for me to like act like I'm better than you because that's clearly not true. So you have a brand regardless if you tried to create it or not, if you're intentional about it. So first I suggest that you find out what that is. And that's not always the most fun process. You're gonna have to be very direct and ask people questions like, how do you see me? What is my personality? How do I act in stressful situations? What's my communication style, et cetera, et cetera. When you ask these questions, um, 
<laughs> do not speak. Um, do not justify yourself. Do not explain yourself. Do not argue. Just take notes and, and you know, be appreciative, of course. Or, or you can ask a clarifying question or something for more detail. And it's a, it's a good idea to ask people that uh, work with you a lot, work with you a very little bit, um, you know, people that are maybe at your level or not at your level, um, and ask your friends and family, because of course they know you best, which is probably the most uncomfortable part of the situation. And this was an exercise I had a coach, uh, an executive coach tell me to do. So it's not like I just came up with this on my own. And so once you gather all that information, you know, see where the trends show up and be like, oh, you know, they think uh, I'm a great speaker or they think that I'm not a good listener or they think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not enough of a leader if I want to get to this next position or, or they think I'm a good team player. Whatever shows up, you know, like, hey, Amanda has amazing technical knowledge that's not to be um, disputed with, but however, you know, her interpersonal skills, she, she's a little blunt and therefore she sometimes has a hard time, you know, gaining consensus across different teams and different people. That was like the, like one of the pieces of feedback I received, something to that effect. So I knew that I had to, um, even though I want, I love being on teams and that's how I, I function. Um, I'm always used to functioning at the very, very top level and not everybody appreciates that. So I'd have to scale it back and be a lot more open and inviting. Like, hey, everybody knows Amanda is, you know, technically strong, but we don't really know how to work with her because it's, it's something new, right? So get all this information, look at it. If there's some outliers, especially if they don't feel right, especially if like in your gut or in your heart or wherever your feelings live, like it just seems off and you don't agree with it, just put it to the side. Um, you know, maybe somebody gave some feedback and they don't really know you very well. They just saw you in one situation and it's not a pattern. Um, so then once you get all this data and you normalize it and you say, all right, these are three trends, then go work on them, figure out what you need to do. Do I need to take classes? Do I just need to observe myself? Do I need to observe others? Do I, whatever it is to improve those things, do that. Now only do that if um, you want to. So the reason I believe a brand exists is to get you to where you want to go in your career or life or whatever. So if you're super happy with exactly where you are and that's where you're supposed to be, you technically don't have to do any of that stuff because you don't actually have to change anything as long as you're not like on a pip and about to be fired, like you're doing great, right? So only do this stuff if you want to, because it is going to be the level of effort of a second job, like if you, if you do it well, right? And so it will be this full-time job of self-discovery, self-understanding, and then figuring out what can I do in my non-working hours to improve these things? And what do I do during my working hours to improve these things? And so if you can align your brand and what people view you as and, and understand you to be to this position or this team that you want to be on um, in your career, then that's exactly how you're going to get there. Because then when you go to that interview or you talk to the boss or, or the leader about that position, your brand has preceded you and they know that you are an excellent fit or you're an almost fit and they're willing to, to take a chance on you. Mm -hmm. So interesting that building your personal brand has this big aspect of self-exploration and growth, personal growth. So it's actually something that everyone should do regardless of uh, whether they want to approach a new career step or whatever. It's just good to know yourself, I think, even on a personal level, right? So um, obviously your uh, brand has helped you grow within VMware and you've been around a long time, a really long time. So I would like to understand why you remain here, not only obviously because of your career, but what excites you about uh, being at VMware and the technology we sell? Yeah, so 
The first time I saw VMware technology was ESX2 something. And I was a, a, a server architect or technical architect at this manufacturing company. And so the manufacturing company wasn't, you know, like some technologically advanced location, but certainly, you know, we had plenty of Windows servers and Linux servers and Unix. And I became a storage admin because the storage admins quit. I was like, I want to learn that. So I am the technical architect. My part of my job was I had to do lifecycle replacement of 100 servers a year, some at the local data center, some at manufacturing plants or whatever. And um, the VMware account team came in and did the show and they're like, this is vMotion. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that is by far the coolest thing I've ever seen. Somebody who's tasked with replacing hundred servers and I could have no downtime in the future when I have to do it again. And in the meantime, I saved the company money. I was like, I am totally doing this. So I worked with my boss um, to prepare the presentation that I'd give to the CIO to convince her that um, we should do this virtualization thing because, hey, I can save you whatever, like $700,000 on hardware and I just have to spend this much and this much on software and, and this is the deal. So I like stressed for like two weeks to put together this presentation because I'm like 25 years old at the time, never had a meeting with the CIO, never like tried to change tech to this level at a company. And I, and I like finally had my one slide with the four quadrants because executives don't want a bunch of slides. I'd go in there, I'm so nervous. And she only asked me one question. She asked, are we using AMD or Intel? And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, really? I did not prepare for that, but clearly we're using AMD because it's the best it was at the time. And she's like, great, that's what all the other CIOs are doing. Go ahead, it's approved. And so like, this goes to show a few things. Like one, if you're gonna ner be nervous about something, it's fine. Humans are nervous about things all the time. Um, everybody at the top of their profession, whatever it is, still get nervous before they perform, have a big meeting, it's fine. Just be nervous, know that that's part of it. But the way to counteract that is to be prepared, right? And have all your facts, all your information, whether you're gonna need it in that meeting or not. And I do that today when I meet with customers, I'm fully prepared, like deep dive into the company and the people that I'm gonna talk to, et cetera. Because then when the questions come up, they're very easy to answer because I've already thought about it and you know, already put a lot of time into it. So anyway, so um, got to deploy ESX um, into test dev. My first production environment was like ESX 2.54. And um, I learned so much by going through that. Clearly, I uh, had to step up my storage admin skills, had to step up my convince my networking friends that, hey, we should do this thing, even though you're just going to trunk a bunch of VLANs to my server. And trust me. Yeah, it's like the last thing a network engineer wants to do, right? And so I was able to provide a lot of value to the company. I was able to start virtualizing process control systems, which clearly had never happened before. Um, and I was like, and one time I had this incident where I had P2V'd an NT4O machine and it didn't come back online all the way when it was a virtual machine. And of course it was the most important server in the entire company. Um, and that's why it was still NT4O and clearly not supported by Microsoft. And I called into support to say, um, I don't know. I know like, you know, like Microsoft doesn't support this, but this machine worked as a physical machine. It's not coming up as a virtual machine. Can you help me? And the person that was taking the call was actually like an ESX engineer. Like back then the, the R&D folks had to take a, like a, a spin on the help desk so they could understand what was happening with the customers. I think it was like a stellar idea. And so I don't know who he was or you know, what his position was, but he sat on the phone with me for like an hour trying to figure out how we can get this NT4O VM to come up all the way. And, and it did. And you know, therefore I was very relieved. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So not only did I love the tech, but I also love the people. 
you know, the people that were there, it wasn't his job to figure out NC4O. It wasn't his job to stay an hour late after he was, you know, supposed to be done with his help desk shift. Like he didn't have to, but he was so helpful and it just so changed my day. And I knew from that moment on, I wanted to work for VMware. Um, and so the tech, you know, was awesome, but also the, the, this person and my account team, they all just seemed like really good people and, and very supportive. So I made it, you know, that decision that day that I was going to work for VMware, and I didn't right away. Um, my next job was to work as a consultant for EDS, which is now part of HP, and I did like infrastructure rationalization, data center consolidation, clearly used a lot of VMware tech to do that. And then um, I worked for this other company called IHS in Colorado. They're a big um, uh, a reference customer of ours now, and set like the strategy. And by then, like vSphere 4 came out. And so um, I had to build the solution where our sales teams could demo our products. And so what I ended up building was basically one cloud. However, nobody like told me this, like it would have been super helpful if my SE like at the time just gave me the answer versus me building it in a vacuum. But that meant that showed that one, I used all the beta products. I gave a bunch of feedback around vSphere 4.0 and at the time Nexus 1000V, I was using that. And, um, and then, you know, I was using them in a different way that the other customers weren't. So when his um, position opened up because he was taking another position at VMware. He called me up and said, hey, I'm taking another position inside VMware. Would you like my job? And I was like, absolutely, I like your job. But I was really scared because it was like salesy and that wasn't me. Like I was strong technically, I wanna solve problems, et cetera. But I did get the job um, through the interview process. And then that's when I had to learn to talk more about the business side. I could talk speeds and feeds, technical solutions all day long, didn't need any enablement for that. But talking about the business is, is where I had to learn. So I knew I wanted to work for, for VMware for a while. It just took me, I think it was about four years to get there after I made the decision, maybe five. Yeah. And what makes you stay? What makes me stay? Um, the same stuff, actually. So the, the people, you know, like I said, have been here a long time. Anytime I have a question, whether it's like, what's this feature or whatever, or more of a strategy question, and I don't even know who to talk to, people direct me to the right person. Um, and then, you know, that person is always open to listening and interacting and collaborating. Um, the tech that we produce year after year is pretty amazing. We solve problems that no other companies out there solve. You know, being in the office of the CTO, being part of the organization, research and innovation that does X labs and, and future research and Tom Hyde's ACE team that, you know, augments our technology. Like we do really exciting stuff. And so not only do I get to talk about what's on the truck, so to speak, you know, what our portfolio is today, but also I get to talk with customers about all this cool tech that we're doing and you know, asking for them to be innovation partners with us and for us to co-create solutions. So still the tech and the people. Um, and I think that's what will keep me here for a while. How do you deal with corporate politics? Being a direct person could pose a problem in that area. I'm laughing because um, I've definitely had some experiences where I spent a lot of time apologizing <laughs> and learning. Um, so, <laughs> So yes, being a direct person is not always appreciated by many people. Um, and, and so um, learning to be political and diplomatic is, is necessary, depending on how high you wanna go in your career or like what type of people you can surround yourself with. If you're only working with a bunch of direct people and blunt people, like everybody gets where you're coming from, nobody's you know, having their feelings hurt or maybe not as much, and then we can laugh about it and recover and joke and still be friends. But clearly there's personalities of all types in a company and especially there's a, a level of um, 
professionalism and being political and diplomatic that's required, you know, however high you go in a company, regardless of the company. So um, the way that I deal with it is I have a trusted friend or mentor, whoever that I can vent to and say all the things that I really want to say. Mm -hmm. And then once I get that out, I know I'm not going to say it in a forum where I should not be saying those things. Um, you know, sometimes I might journal or open up an email and write it and then quickly delete it. So it never accidentally gets seen or sent or anything like that. And so while I'm going through all these activities to get my frustrations out or, or all the things that I want to say, um, and then once I do that, then I know exactly the content of what I should be saying. And then I calm down enough, you know, if, I, if I'm heated or upset or frustrated or whatever, I've calmed down enough where then I can have that constructive conversation. And so then what I do is I think about what's happening for this other person, like what's going on? Like, you know, maybe they're having a terrible day, a terrible week, terrible month, terrible year, right? Like we've all had pretty tough years. So let's cut, you know, like let's cut each other some slack or, you know, I don't know what's occurring in their life. So maybe the way they're coming at me is not how they are. Maybe it's just a stressor in their life causing that. So let me figure out how to meet them where they are. Let me listen to and hear what they're trying to solve and then share my perspective, not in a way that it's a lesser opinion, um, or it doesn't matter as much, regardless of where this person is in the organization, you know, above me or equal or sits, you know, in, a, in an earlier part in their career in the organization. But I need to communicate my opinion, my beliefs, and a solution, a very specific solution, if I'm concerned about something, to them in a way that is respectful, not only for them in the conversation, but for the topic that I'm discussing or speaking about. So it's one, get out all my frustration or anger or all the words I shouldn't say in a professional setting first, then, you know, interact with people that can help guide me in a way to have this conversation if I'm unsure. And then when I have that conversation, come prepared with facts, data, information, and a solution, don't throw anybody under the bus, you know, admit to, hey, this is how it is. And I know that there's reasons for that. And we all know that, but this is how it can be solved. So, you know, always be kind and respectful. Um, even if you are direct and blunt. That's such a great approach. I think, I mean, it's like, uh, be kind to yourself and, you know, acknowledge your own emotions and also be kind to others because you don't know what's going on with them. And there's also something we hadn't talked about and which I think is quite important is the topic of mentorship, you know, of having someone to go to. I think that's also quite important for a career, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously you had this amazing career here and um, this is a session about women in tech, but I think this question is relevant for everyone. What would you recommend, uh, you know, the young people coming in do to have an equally satisfying career? Hmm. Well, um, there's a saying that we have, the youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I don't know if you all have that saying. And I think about that a lot now because now I'm in my early 40s. And I think the reason that saying exists or the reason I think that saying exists is because like everything's so exhausting, like all these responsibilities, right? I have to adult every day. I have to do my job. I have to take care of things. I have a house. You know, if you have a house, you know that everything breaks all the time. It needs to be fixed, even if it's new. Like, you know, I need to make sure I maintain my relationships. I'm, I'm busy. I have things to do. Maybe I have hobbies that I want to have, right? And there just never seems to be enough time to do all this. And I think back to my early 20s where, you know, clearly my career started, I don't know, maybe even in high school, if, you know, if you want to be technical about it, as PC repair, but I had so much more time and energy. And so as a young person, um, if, you know, if I was in my 20s again, it's not like I didn't do this, but like, don't worry, 
like don't stress like there's plenty of time to stress and worry later when you like have all these responsibilities that are impossible to to escape and i'm not saying it like i feel like i'm trapped or whatever i'm just saying like that's just part of every decade there's like more responsibilities in life so when you're young like have fun like i was having fun hanging out with my hacking buddies and reading 2600 magazine and you know being in the linux user group and whatever like that was fun to me and i was learning if you're just doing something to learn and there's no fun and no passion and whatever behind it, don't do it and like go do something else. And so like keep your hobbies, you know, make friends, you know, whether you're somebody with a lot of friends or small circles of friends, whatever, do all this life stuff. Um, and, and all this life stuff will give you great experiences that will help in your career. So, you know, you can build your career path and be aware of what tech you enjoy and learn as much as possible and play with as much as possible and implement as much as possible and do all that stuff, but be a young person and have fun because as you get older, there's just not as many chances because there's other things that, that come up in life. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great way to put it. And I would like to emphasize the part about, you know, having fun with what you're doing. Thank you, Amanda. This was great. It was so inspiring. And